Um, and when he was seated, his disciples came unto him. It was traditional for a rabbi to teach from a seated position. And Jesus sat down, and the disciples gathered around. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let's stop at that point. We could read the rest of them, but we'll hopefully be able to cover them in the weeks ahead. And I will be back on Monday next week to go to the next beatitude. But let's look at that idea of blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain merciful. Uh, they shall obtain mercy. The religion, uh, just to give you a little bit of a background and remind you where we are, the religion Jesus faced in his day was not unlike religion today in that it was superficial. It was shallow and it was external. The Jewish leaders, for the most part, had a form of religion, but no reality at all. In fact, they were as far from God as you could possibly be. They had formalized religion. They went through the motions. They attended their worship, but nothing in the heart at all. They were proud. They were indifferent to other people. They were self-centered. They had little thought for God. They had no interest in Jesus Christ and were totally consumed with their own life. So when Jesus came along, his approach in everything that he taught was to go to the inside. Since religion was all on the outside and shallow and superficial at best, Jesus plunged to the depths of the heart. And he was concerned not so much with action and not so much with uh, religious activity as he was with attitude. And that's really what we've been saying all year long here at the college, that the issue of spiritual life is a matter of attitude. It's not so much conduct as it is character. Frankly, it's relatively easy to regulate conduct. They do that fairly well in prisons. Regulating conduct is very, very easy. All you have to do is have strong authority, profound consequences, and people will modify their behavior. But what you cannot regulate is attitude. And what you cannot force is character. Those are the things that Jesus directed his teaching right at. It is not so much what I do, it is what I am. What I do will ultimately be determined by what I am. But what I am is the issue. And so Jesus, though concerned about action, was only concerned about action as a product of attitude. Though concerned about conduct, was only concerned about conduct as a product of character. And so when Jesus begins to teach... It's all about attitude, and he starts out with being poor in spirit. That's an attitude, an attitude of, of um, beggarliness that says, I don't have anything to commend myself to God. In myself, there's no good thing. There's nothing in me that's worth anything before God. And then another attitude, an attitude of mourning, mourning over my sin, an attitude of meekness, which is humility, an attitude of, of uh, hunger and thirst within my heart for the righteousness that God gives. And here's another attitude, the attitude of mercy, being a merciful person. And uh, so Jesus is after that whole idea of attitude. In fact, we could sum it up by saying a Christian is something before he does anything. A Christian is something before he does anything. Now, to be a child of the king and to be a believer is to be a person who has a certain set of attitudes. A Christian is not someone who does certain religious things. He is a person who has certain religious attitudes, certain internal character qualities. And those are the things listed in the Beatitudes. And Martin Lloyd-Jones one time said, we are not 
to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is to control us. And that's a very important distinction. That puts Christianity on the character level. It is your character that controls you. And so Jesus then is giving us character qualities that we need to understand. Something happens at the heart of a Christian that changes his character, that changes his attitude or her attitude. Jesus, you remember, indicted those who had only externals and called them whited sepulchers who were really full of dead men's bones. Now, the first four Beatitudes that we've already looked at are all principles of the inner person. They're all character qualities. But as we come to this fifth beatitude, we come to a new dimension in the teaching of Christ. Here, then, are certain things that are manifestations of those inner attitudes. Yes, mercy is an inner attitude, but it has here an obvious manifestation. The, the first beatitude begins with poverty of spirit, someone who realizes his spiritual bankruptcy. He acknowledges his need for mercy. He acknowledges that he's a sinner. He mourns over his sin. He wants to have his heart washed. He seeks that righteousness, which he does not have. And when the Lord grants that righteousness, there will be within that person mercy. So in a sense, mercy is the result of a hungering heart. And so there is, in a sense, a little bit of a of a corner turned in this fifth beatitude, and we move away from those basic attitudes that reach out for salvation to those things that are a result of that. Now, let's talk a little bit about what it means to be merciful. And first of all, I just want to share with you some thoughts on the significance of being merciful. What does that really mean? Now, traditionally, there are many people who think that being merciful is some kind of a high level of human virtue. A magnificent human virtue. Uh, Shakespeare, for example, spoke of mercy, and he put it in the mouth of uh, Portia in that famous speech in The Merchant of Venice, and it went like this. The quality of mercy is not stained. It drops as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest and becomes the throned monarch better than his own crown. And those are good words, nice sentiments about mercy from a human viewpoint. Even the Jewish Talmud records this saying of the famous Gamaliel, who was a teacher of the Apostle Paul. He said, whenever thou hast mercy, God will have mercy on thee. And if thou hast not mercy, neither will God have mercy on thee. And so we see in Jewish culture and even in our own culture that mercy is elevated as a very lofty and dignified human virtue. In fact, some would say that the greatest character quality that anyone could have would be mercy or human sympathy toward those who suffer and those who have need. But there's more to mercy than just a human platitude, a nice emotion. In fact, in the Roman world, mercy was despised. Some have assigned to mercy a high level of human dignity, but others have felt that it was anything but desirable. The Romans admired um, justice. They admired uh, courage. They admired strength. They admired power. They admired discipline, but they did not admire mercy. To them, some of the philosophers actually called mercy the disease of the soul. To, to be compassionate was thought to be weak. You should be ashamed of seeing someone in distress and feeling you needed to do something to help them. 
slaves and women and many children were treated in the Roman Empire like rubbish. Uh, a master could actually maim or kill a child, a woman or a slave at his own will with no recourse. So there have been some societies that felt that mercy was a wonderful virtue and some that felt it was anything but that. But that isn't even the issue here. I just kind of give you that and then throw it away. We're not interested in what society thinks about human virtue. We're not interested to defend the humanness of mercy. What we're talking about here is a divine characteristic, something that only God can plant in the heart. And I want you to know that even though society for the most part has said, as I read from the Talmud, if you're merciful, people will be merciful to you. If you give to them, they'll give to you. Even though there's that sort of give and take about mercy in, in the platitudes of human thought, that really isn't the case at all. Let me give you the classic illustration. Who was the most merciful person that ever walked the earth? Jesus Christ. And was he treated with mercy equal to the mercy he dispensed? No. So that platitude and that nice sentiment about if you're merciful, people will be merciful to you just isn't so. I suppose all of us at one time or other in our lives have extended grace and mercy to someone who trampled on us in response to that. So that just doesn't fly. So if you're looking at mercy as a means to self-gain, it may not work. Jesus Christ came into the world, showed mercy to the sick, showed mercy to the crippled, showed mercy to those that were blind and deaf and dumb. He showed mercy to the outcast, the lepers, the sorrowing, the lonely, the unloved, the widows, the little children. He showed mercy to everybody. Once he stopped the funeral procession and he was so overwhelmed with the sorrow of that procession, he reached out, touched the casket and raised the young man from the dead because he just wanted to end the sorrow of the young man's mother. And there was a harlot in John 8 that came to him, uh, brought by some men who had caught her in the act of adultery. And he said to her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. He was merciful to that woman in the midst of her sinful situation because he saw a repentant heart. He showed mercy to the outcasts of his society who were the tax collectors and the, the publicans, the, the outright overt sinners. In fact, the scribes and the Pharisees said he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And uh, they were the worst the word sinner has to do with the worst of people in society and tax collectors were the publicani who had sold themselves to Rome to make money by overtaxing their own people, traitors among the Jews. And so they accused Jesus of the terrible thing of being merciful to sinners. And that was really the case. He definitely was. From start to finish, his life was an act of mercy. He showed mercy all the way along to everyone. And we would assume that if mercy carried its own reward, if when you're merciful, people are merciful to you, then he being the most merciful man who ever lived would have received some of the same mercy that he gave out. But in fact, they nailed the most merciful man who ever lived to a cross and they spit on him. So mercy is not necessarily its own reward. We're not seeking a human virtue for the sake of its own reward. Romanism was as merciless a system as imaginable, and Judaism was equally merciless as well. In fact, do you remember that Jesus, when looking over the city of Jerusalem and weeping, said, O Jerusalem, thou that stonest the prophets and killest those that are sent unto you. The indictment of Israel was that they murdered those who represented the mercy of God. So you have the totalitarianism of Rome, you have the false religion of Judaism and Romanism and Judaism, both merciless come together to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. So mercy does not refer to some human emotion that stimulates the very best in other people, not necessarily. What is it then that mercy is all about and what are we seeing here? 
Well, the word simply means to succor the afflicted, to give help to the wretched, to, res to rescue the miserable. It basically means to reach out and help people who need help. That's mercy. It comes from, uh, it's the word Elia Mones. And we have a word in English that you probably haven't heard of uh, often. It's the word Elia Mosonary. Have you ever heard that word? It means without profit. If you have an organization and you file in the state of California for what's called a, I think it's a C3501 organization by code, it's called an eleemosonary organization. That is, it's a not-for-profit organization. Its goal is to help and benefit without gaining any profit. And that's where that word eleemosonary comes from, the Greek term. The word mercy is eleo, to have mercy. It just basically means to help people who are in trouble. It's a broad word. It has the idea of sympathy and compassion in action. It is not the weak sympathy which carnal selfishness feels and never does anything to help, but it is the sympathy that actually helps. All of us, I think, know the weak sympathy of feeling sorry for people, but that's a far cry from doing something, right? I mean, we all see people in need and we say, be warm, be filled, my brother. I hope everything works out. And we pat them on the back and go on our merry way. It is not a silent, passive pity which may be genuine in its feeling, but not genuine in its expression. It is reaching out to meet the needs of those who suffer. The Hebrew word is an almost untranslatable word. And if you see that word, it would be translated C-H-E-S-E-D in the Old Testament. You'll find it translated many different ways, but it always implies a very specific, deliberate act of caring. It is not just a thought. It is not just an attitude. In fact, the best way, I think, to maybe to understand Kesed in the Old Testament would be to understand that it means to get inside another person's skin until you think his thoughts, feel his emotions, and act to meet his needs. It's a very intense moment of identification. And this, too, is a characteristic of Christianity. Those of us who love the Lord Jesus Christ have more than a passing interest in the needs of other people, right? There's something about the needs of other people that draws us to them. Even as the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world banished disease from the land of Palestine during the life, uh, uh, the duration of his ministry and life, so we have that same sympathy. If the life of God is in the soul of man, then the life of God will manifest the same kind of thing. Now, to give you a little further definition of mercy, let me compare it to some other terms, okay? Let's compare mercy and forgiveness by saying this. Titus 3, 5 says, according to his mercy, he saved us. So behind his forgiveness was his mercy. Mercy, then, is behind forgiveness. From God's viewpoint, he forgives us because he sees our need and he acts toward that need in a forgiving way. Mercy is forgiving, but that's only one aspect. Mercy could be a lot of things. Mercy is definitely when God forgives us, but mercy is also when God blesses us because we don't deserve that either and we have great need. The earth is full of thy mercies, it says in Psalm 119.64. In Genesis 32.10, it says, I am not worthy of the least of all thy mercies. There are many expressions of mercy. Forgiveness is only one of those, but it is a wonderful one. It is according to his mercy that he has forgiven us. So forgiveness is one expression of mercy. Think of that in the human realm. If I have mercy in my heart towards someone who's offended me, what will I do? Forgive them. That's the expression of mercy. Now, let's compare two other words to help us get a, a little clearer understanding of mercy. Mercy and love. 
How are mercy and love to be compared? Well, just as forgiveness flows from mercy, mercy flows from love. And now there is a sequence in our understanding. Mercy flows from love. Ephesians 2 says that he is merciful to us because of his great love wherewith he has loved us. So you start with God's love and out of his love comes sympathy and compassion. And out of his sympathy and compassion comes the act of forgiveness or any other act that brings benefit to one who has great need. Mercy respects those that are in misery. But mercy is born out of love for those who are in misery. We could say mercy is a physician while love is a friend. Love acts out of affection. Mercy may act only out of conscience. Love is constant. Mercy operates only in the time of need. So mercy is a product of love. Now, what about another comparison? Uh, mercy and grace. How are mercy and grace different? How is alias and charis, uh, the word for grace, how are they to be distinguished? Let me give you a simple way to distinguish them. Mercy offers relief from punishment. It is a word of relief, whereas grace offers pardon for the crime. It's grace first, then mercy. Mercy always deals with the misery. It always deals with the distress. It always deals with the pain. While grace always deals with the, the cause of that. Uh, we could say it very simply from God's viewpoint. Grace deals with sin and mercy deals with the consequence of sin. When God gives us grace, that covers the sin. When he gives us mercy, that eliminates the punishment. They are unique and yet they're united. Mercy eliminates the pain and grace grants us even a better condition where there is no pain. So mercy pities and grace pardons. And then a fourth comparison, and I'll sum these up in a minute. Mercy and justice. Mercy and justice. They need to be discussed together because we have to ask this question. If God is merciful to us, does that set his justice aside? God looks at you and he looks at me and he says, we're sinners. And by his grace, he will pardon our sin. And by his mercy, he will eliminate our punishment. Now, what is he going to do with his justice? Because justice requires that punishment. Is that not so? The wages of sin is what? Death. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. God is of pure eyes and to behold evil cannot look upon iniquity. God must respond in a way that is consistent with his holy nature against evil. So we have to understand that when God is gracious to us and God is merciful to us in Christ, that does not violate his justice. Because God, in expressing one attribute, cannot violate another attribute. Else he would be flawed in his nature. So God can only give mercy when justice is satisfied, right? And in terms of our salvation, how did he satisfy his justice? Who received his justice? Jesus Christ. Christ died on the cross bearing the punishment that we were forgiven of. Bearing the consequence that we were delivered from. So setting aside justice is not an option for God. God must act in a way to express his justice. The cross, then, is where mercy and justice meet. 
Because on the cross, there is justice. Christ is dying for your sin and my sin because somebody has to die. But there is mercy in that it is Christ, not us, right? So mercy and justice meet at the cross of Christ. So when we think about what mercy is, we think, first of all, about mercy and forgiveness. Mercy is not forgiveness, but mercy prompts forgiveness. We think about mercy and love. Mercy is not love, but love motivates mercy. We think about mercy and grace, and we make the distinction that grace pardons our sin and mercy relieves our punishment. Grace removes our sin and mercy removes our pain, the result of that sin. And then we understand that mercy and justice are related in that God is only merciful to us because he has poured out his just wrath on Jesus Christ. So to sum up mercifulness, we could say the merciful not only bear the insults of evil men, but their hearts reach out to those evil men in compassion. For they know they will perish in their sins. The merciful are sympathetic to the afflicted because they love them. They are gentle to the weak. They are considerate of the fallen. They are generous to the poor. They are gracious to the offensive. They are helpful to the needy and on and on and on. They remember that they are in constant need of divine mercy themselves. And so they are quick to share the same with someone else. Since God has changed my heart by his mercy, I certainly ought to be willing to share mercy with someone who is in need of it. This is a characteristic of a Christian, a characteristic of a Christian. I believe a true, uh, a truly born again individual is going to have mercy toward those in need. I, if I have time enough to be with someone over a long period of time, I should sense in their heart a compassion that acts in behalf of people in need. If I don't see that, then I have to question the genuineness of their faith. Psalm 37:21 puts it this way. The wicked borrows and pays not again, but the righteous shows mercy and giveth. It was mercy, for example, in Abraham, after he had been wronged by his nephew, Lot, that caused him to go his own way and allow Lot to receive the best. It was mercy on the part of Joseph that allowed him, even though he had been betrayed by his brothers, to freely forgive them and meet their need, even though they had sent him to his death, they thought. It was mercy in Moses, after Miriam, you remember his sister, had rebelled against him and been stricken with leprosy that made him cry, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee, in Numbers 12:13, Moses was merciful toward his rebellious sister. It was mercy in David that caused him to spare the life of Saul, who tried to kill him so many times. I mean, this is the mark of someone who walks with God. He demonstrates or she demonstrates a heart of mercy, a compassionate heart toward people in need, no matter how those people may have offended or injured or wounded them. There's so many things that I've jotted down in terms of Scripture, but I would just suggest to you that you read through Proverbs sometime and identify all the places there where you'll find instruction regarding mercy. I, I might just draw you to one illustration. Turn in your Bible for a minute to Psalm 109. Praise ye the Lord, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And then that psalmist goes on to talk about all of the things that God has done in his wonderful mercy, his eternal mercy. 
and flows all down. You can read all the way down through verse 16 or even further. This is not an uncommon thing in the Psalms. And I only point this one Psalm out to remind you that you will find as you study the Old Testament, not only in Proverbs, but also in Psalms, that over and over again, the mercy of the Lord is extolled. In fact, there is one Psalm in particular that repeats his mercy endureth forever in every single verse in the Psalm. So mercy is a vital part of the life of God and therefore the life of the people of God. And so when you do a spiritual inventory on your own life, you ask, do I have that brokenness that realizes I have nothing to commend myself to God? Do I mourn over my sin? Am I humble before God? Do I hunger and thirst after righteousness? And is my life marked by mercy? Do I find myself compassionately drawn to people in need and acting in behalf of those people? Blessed are the merciful, those compassionate, benevolent, sympathetic people who sacrificially give to meet the need of other people. Now, let me talk a little bit about the source of this. We've talked about something of its significance, but what is the source? Where do we find this kind of mercy? We said already that it isn't some kind of high human virtue. I believe it ought to be obvious to all of us that this particular virtue comes to us from God. The source is God. It is an attribute of God to be merciful, and he communicates that attribute to us. As God is love, and therefore we who live in God should show love. As God is truth, and we who live in God should love truth. As God is holiness, and we who live in God should demonstrate holiness. So God is merciful, and we who live in God should demonstrate mercy. In fact, Ephesians 2, 4 says God is rich in mercy. Psalm 103.11 says, as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy. In other words, his mercy is absolutely incomprehensible. Luke 6.36 says, then, be ye therefore merciful as your father is merciful. And then that psalm I mentioned a moment ago, I think it's Psalm 136. I'd have to check. But I think it's Psalm 136 that just over and over says God's mercy endures forever. Psalm 62.12, I believe, also says, um, Unto thee, O Lord, belongs mercy. So mercy is a gift from God. It's not the human virtue we're talking about. It is a divine gift that only God can give and give only to his own people. Now, I would suggest to you that if it's true that the mercy of God surpasses the mercy of men, then our kindness and our goodness ought to surpass that of other people who don't know God, right? If Christians are not in the world the most merciful and the most compassionate, then we betray the fact that something is desperately wrong. To hear the virtue of God's mercy, we only need to listen to Scripture. But thou, O Lord, art a God full of compassion and gracious, long-suffering, and plenteous in mercy and truth. That's Psalm 86, verse 15. That's characteristic of God. So God is the source of mercy. Now, if you want to see the mercy of God best, you look at Christ. God got inside the skin of men, as it were, in Jesus Christ. And in Christ is manifested the mercy of God. You see it there. Oh, how merciful Jesus was to his enemies, to everyone who crossed his path with a need. He was eager to meet that need. And his mercy is most demonstrated in his death on the cross for needy sinners.
Arnold Gray, Donald Gray Barnhouse, the great Bible teacher of the prior generation, wrote this. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. God has now had mercy upon us. For anyone to pray, God have mercy on me, is the equivalent of asking him to repeat the sacrifice of Christ. All the mercy that God ever will have on man, he already had when Christ died. That is the totality of mercy. There could not be any more mercy. God can now act toward us in grace because he's already had all mercy upon us. The fountain is now opened and flowing and it flows freely. We speak of this mercy when we say, he saw me ruined in the fall. This is a hymn he quotes. He saw me ruined in the fall. He loved me notwithstanding all. He saved me from my lost estate. His loving kindness. Oh, how great. We may correctly sing, mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty. Where? At Calvary. Mercy was fully poured out at Calvary. And Micah, the prophet Micah in chapter 7 verse 18 says, God delights in mercy. God delights in mercy. Thomas Watson, the great Puritan, wrote, every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. It's good, isn't it? Every time you draw your breath, you suck in mercy. Because if you got your, your, deserved, your deserved fate, you wouldn't be able to breathe. You'd be dead. Every bit of bread you eat, the hand of mercy carries it to you. You never drink, he said, but in a golden cup of mercy. We live by mercy. And so we should live of mercy and share it with others. That's the essence of being a Christian. The perfect man is a man of mercy, as Christ was merciful. A true child of the king is going to empty himself of pride. He's going to empty himself of self-indulgence. He's going to empty himself of grasping attitudes. And he is going to be very concerned that he empties his own hand into the hand of someone who has a need. He lays himself in the dust before he passes by the one who lies there in need. This is mercy. There are many ways to do this. You could give money to someone who had a need. You could give food to someone who needed it. You could give clothing to someone who needed that. You could provide a bed for someone who needed to sleep. You could forgive someone, someone who hurt you very deeply, someone who grieved you very much, someone who broke your heart. There are many ways that you can show mercy. Every day, you can show mercy to a, a classmate who perhaps in some way wronged you, even a faculty member that in your own judgment was unfair. You can show mercy. Mercy forgives because mercy is born of love and love is born of God. In Deuteronomy 15:7, it says, if there be among you a poor man of one of your brethren within any of the gates in the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide unto him and surely give him sufficient for his need in that which he lacks. That should happen here on our campus. Some of us have more than the rest. Is that not so? You may know of someone with a need. If you love the Lord Jesus Christ and if 
the Spirit of Christ dominates your heart, you're going to reach out to someone in need. But beyond that physical thing, what about being merciful to someone's soul? What about being merciful to someone's soul? What do we mean by that? How about this? Never retaliating. When someone says an unkind thing or does an unkind thing to you, instead of reacting in retaliation, you show mercy. What about never holding a grudge? What about never uh, wanting to get vengeance, your pound of flesh? What about never slandering another person but showing them mercy and compassion? What about never saying an evil word about anyone? What about never gossiping? Boy, that's hard. That is hard. What about never pointing out a weakness in someone else? What about never flaunting someone's failure? What about never marking out someone's sin? You see, when you don't do those things, you show mercy. You show compassion and sympathy. Augustine, St. Augustine as he's known, was so merciful that he wanted to remind everybody who came to his home about mercy. And he had, a, I guess, a large table where people came and ate with him. And he carved words on the table so that everybody eating would see them. This is what he had carved on his table. And by the way, in those days, everyone sat at the table at great lengths of time, and that's where conversation occurred. The table was where you talked. And on the table of Augustine, it said this, Whoever loves another man's name to blast, this table's not for him, so let him fast. <laughs> Fair enough. Good reminder. And maybe that's something we ought to have stuck somewhere where we often have our long conversations that wind up discrediting someone else. People who have no mercy to others may not have received mercy from God. Surely those who have received mercy from God would have mercy on others. Do you remember Luke 8, uh, Matthew 18? The guy who was forgiven the, the, the large debt and then went out and strangled a guy for a few bucks? Can we do that who have received so much? Alien, who was a Roman writer of natural history, in his particular volume on history, reports that in India there was a great beast called a griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N. It had four feet like a beast and wings like an eagle. Interesting thing. You may have seen a picture of that in some mythological books. It was very hard to classify and nobody could figure out whether it was a beast or a fowl. Only the gods knew, said this writer. And I think about that in the fact that there are those who profess to fly on wings to heaven but have no mercy. Their feet simply lick the dust of earth. You're nothing but a beast with wings who can't fly. People who profess to soar on the wings of salvation who may be really earthbound. The vindictive, the self-righteous, the defensive person who protects only himself. He's like the priest and the Levite who hurries by the man on the road. Remember? On the road to Jericho and just runs by. So we need to be merciful. That's a mark of our faith. How can we do that? Well, let me suggest just practical guidelines. One, by pity. Just sympathy. 
St. Augustine said, if I weep for the body from which the soul has departed, how should I weep for the soul from which God has departed? Oh, that's good. If I weep at a funeral, how should I weep at people whose souls are lost? I think if you're really a merciful person, you're going to have compassion for the lost. That's what I'm driving at. You think God has compassion on us who are lost? Was Christ moved with compassion when he saw the people as a sheep, a sheep without a shepherd? Was, was the heart of Christ moved with compassion so that he wept? If I have the mercy of God in me, then I should have that compassion. Think about Stephen, who's crushed under the stones at his own execution and lifts up his eyes and says, lay not this sin to their charge. That's mercy, isn't it? That's great compassion on the lost. How about Christ on the cross? Father, what? He says, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. So we show compassion by the pity that we carry in our hearts for the lost that moves us to desire their salvation. We also show our mercy by, I suppose, what we could call proclamation. Um, I am merciful when I tell you the truth about your sin. Is that not so? People say, well, boy, why do, why do you say that? That's pretty strong stuff. That offends people. A man came to me Sunday night after the message and said to me, uh, uh, I want to ask you, uh, some of the things you said to me didn't seem to be too, you said tonight didn't seem to be too kind. They didn't seem to be too um, gracious. In fact, they were offensive. Um, and he even said that, in what way could those things edify anyone? And you know, it's a very naive view. I, I, I hope I was gracious with him, but I tried to point out that I appreciated his asking the question, but it's rather naive to assume that there isn't a proper place to warn people. I mean, the man would be a, basically a fool who said there's never a time to warn somebody, right? And certainly in the spiritual dimension, uh, we, we are showing mercy when we cry out the truth. Is that not so? I mean, if I point out the lostness of a man to that man, is that merciful? Of course it is. If I point out the sin of a believer to that believer, is that merciful? Of course it is. It's amazing how people think that when you tell them the truth about sin and its consequence, that you're uncaring when the truth of the matter is just the opposite. Don't tell somebody about the truth about their sin and you have shown you don't care. Tell them and you show you have. And I know I'm sometimes criticized for being loveless or having a lack of love. To certain sinners but that's not the case at all the one who doesn't love the sinner is the one who doesn't say anything about his sin I think another way we can show mercy is by prayer we cry out to God for mercy to be dispensed to someone else I'll tell you something if you pray for somebody it's awful hard to hold a grudge against them and the sacrifice of prayer for the souls of those in disobedience, the souls of those without the Savior, the souls of those believers who are sinning, a sacrifice of prayer on their behalf is a way of showing mercy to them as we ask God on their behalf. And there's nothing wrong with that. That ought to occupy us in our own spiritual exercise. And then one more, I would just add pardoning. We already mentioned that. By pardoning, that is by forgiving them. By, by pitying them in their condition of sin. By proclaiming the truth, by praying for them. And by pardoning them, granting them forgiveness for something they may have done to offend us. Now look at the result of this. If we live a life of mercy and have a, a, an attitude of mercy, we will obtain mercy. 
we will obtain mercy. And by the way, the pronoun here is emphatic. Blessed are the merciful, for they alone shall obtain mercy. No one else will. What does that mean? That means the only people, to turn it around, the only people who know the mercy of God in their lives are the people who, by virtue of demonstration of mercy, show themselves to have that relationship with God, which receives mercy. Does that sound like a circle? The point is this. The people who show mercy show it because they're the people who've received it. And they keep on receiving it. It's just like First uh, John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's what? Faithful and just to keep on forgiving us our sins. If we're the ones confessing, then he's the one continually forgiving. Forgiveness goes on all the time. If we're the ones showing mercy, to borrow the same kind of analogy, if we're the ones showing mercy, then we give evidence of being the ones who are constantly receiving mercy. I want God's mercy, don't you? I need mercy for my sin. I need mercy for my weakness. I need mercy for the foibles of my life. It's his mercy that preserves me. And that mercy is continually poured out to the one who shows mercy and in such showing demonstrates himself to be a true believer who is a recipient of mercy. And that's what the psalmist meant when he said this. If I'm the right person in the right relationship with God, surely goodness and mercy shall what? Follow me all the days of my life. And that's all you need mercy for, right? You don't need mercy in heaven because you're perfect. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 59, 13, I will sing aloud of thy mercy. We are the sons of mercy. We have received mercy from God through Christ. And we are to show forth that mercy. And as we show forth that mercy, God continues to pour out mercy on us. What a marvelous thing. Of course, it's our prayer that every one of you are in that circle of mercy, receiving from God, giving to others, and receiving more from God. This is the kind of attitude that ought to mark every Christian. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful, wonderful truth. I thank you for every precious life here, every cherished young person, every student, faculty member, staff person you've given us here. I thank you for the great joy in my own heart to be just a small part of what you're doing here at the Master's College. And Lord, I know that what you're really doing here is being done on the inside. You're, you're at work shaping, changing, molding a people for your name who are not marked by shallow, superficial, external things, but who have transformed character, whose attitudes are the attitudes of God. I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that you will indeed make it so that we manifest the very mercy that you manifested to us in Christ. Fill our hearts with that compassion and sympathy that causes us to do good things for those in need and to withhold evil 
from all around us. Give us hearts of forgiveness. Help us to preach mercifully to those who need to hear the truth. Help us to pray for mercy for those who need it and to show our sympathy in every way we can. May it be that we are marked by those around us as a merciful people. And in so being marked, we give our identification as Christ-like, for He is the supreme example of mercy. Thank you for what you've done in our lives through Christ and are doing. Make this day a day of benefit, not just for its own sake, but for the sake of eternity. And we thank you in Christ's name. And everyone said, Amen. Have a great day.